Good morning, folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. We're broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We're here in the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Got a great program for you. Before I tell you about that, I want to make a quick shout-out to some of our local business partners here in the Des Moines metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located on 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a catering service, which is, of course, a great time of the year to be thinking about a catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating creatures great and small for over 30 years. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. And thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, located on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with excellent and friendly service. Okay, so um, later in the program, Mark Stringer with the ACLU is joining us to talk about how one local trans student responded to a very hateful protest by the Westboro Baptist Church. And we'll also be talking about a new level of voter suppression, which is, again, deeply disturbing. But first, we've got a feel-good story to kick this uh, program off. Norm Sturzenbach is in the studio with me. Good morning. Hello, Norm. Hi. And you're with the uh, Lawrence and Skate Park. Correct. And uh, <clears throat> this is about to become the largest skate park in the U.S. That's right. Bigger than Texas. Bigger than Texas. Take that, Texas. So there. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, I, I mean, I... I, I don't know if most people would, when asked the question, where is the largest skate park in America? Not many people are going to guess Des Moines. <laughs> no, and we're going to change that. We're going to make Des Moines uh, a skate community and known the, the world over. All right. Well, yeah, with no thanks to Donald Trump. <laughs> or maybe thanks to him. I don't know. We need something else to do in our so, lives. So I, I want to hear about the, uh, the it, this has been um, a long time coming. Mm -hmm. But I, there's a little known chapter to this history that uh, that, that, that few of us, I think I'm maybe the, maybe one of the few that know about. So back in um, I think 1994 or five, I can't remember the exact year. Uh, skateboarders in Des Moines were being arrested. Young kids were out there skating because they had no other place to go, and they were being arrested. Um, and uh, there was universal outrage. What you're 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 putting kids in jail for skateboarding? And some of the complaint was, well, there's they're damaging surfaces. Uh, but what? But the biggest complaint was. Liability. We are concerned that if there's an accident, uh, the city will be stuck having to pay for whatever claim comes out of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, a woman named Tammy Kuhn from Norwalk, uh, she had uh, gone on a weight loss program using rollerblading as her solution. And it worked great for her, and she became a really good rollerblader and uh, connected with the kids downtown Des Moines and went to, to meet with them and heard their story, saw the uh, news about them being arrested. And then came to me as a state lawmaker and says, what do we do about this? Well, we started poking around and found out that California had just passed a law defining uh, skateboarding as a hazardous activity. And that was so that it would relieve the city of the risk of liability. Mm -hmm. And so we filed a bill. Um, and I was a Democrat in a Republican world, so you know, normally Democratic bills don't go places. But I filed the bill on my, on, in my own name. And then I got blasted by City View <laughs> because they saw that they thought they thought we were trying to, uh, you know, define skateboarding as something very dangerous that people shouldn't do. They didn't understand it was the exact opposite. Sure. You define it as hazardous, and then and then the uh, the cities feel more comfortable mm -hmm. um, initiating a skate park. And that's what happened. I mean, Redfield, uh, Pella, Pella was big into this. Pella was all over it. They were promoting it uh, extensively. They were helping us uh, lobby for the bill. And um, West Des Moines, there were cities all over the state that wanted this bill in a big way. And so at the very, um, the very last minute, though, so we were starting to build support. I mean, Republicans were okay with it because it was like less government. Okay, sure, sure. do this. Mm -hmm. The opposition came from the trial attorneys. <laughs> oh. The trial lawyers <laughs> sure. decided they didn't want it. And so there was suddenly Democratic opposition to a bill introduced by a Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's never happened before, right? <laughs> and so we still, I, actually my best friend in the House then was uh, Dan Boddicker, okay. a very conservative Republican sure. who liked the bill. Mm -hmm. And you know, pushing the bill in the Senate was Democrat Elaine Zimoniak. So we got it done, it passed, and, um, and then all these other cities started putting in parks. And I was, I was wondering, well, why not Des Moines? What's happening with Des Moines? And it took a while. It did. But you know, sometimes it's not 
a bad thing for something mm -hmm. to, you know, to uh, percolate for what twenty plus years now. Yep. Because what's happening is absolutely out of this world. Yes, absolutely. So it, and then that's where our story comes, thanks yeah. to the work that you did, um, making the municipalities feel more comfortable about taking on the liability for a skate park. You know, as they as they say, um, if your city doesn't have a skate park, it is a skate park. Um, <laughs> that's a good so way to put it. Yes. One of the um, one of the solutions to that is to uh, open up your own public skate park for all the, the kids to enjoy. So this really got started, um, you know, about 15 years ago with Amos. Um, did a survey. That's a, a metropolitan organizing strategy. Yes. And that's a church-based group. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So they did a survey um, in different neighborhoods to find out what amenities people wanted to see in their city. And they were really surprised to find um, the overwhelming support for a skate park. And there were a group of uh, young kids who were really pushing it um, and really getting behind the project. Um, and so they went to the city. They uh, talked to um, our current mayor, uh, who donated the land on uh, just next to 2nd Avenue by the river. And then they set off to raise the funds. Um, at that time, the project was estimated at $3.5 million. Wow. And it was not going to be the largest skate park in the country. Um, they had some early success, but then the project kind of stagnated for a while. Right, I remember um, that, yeah. And there were a lot of questions as to whether or not um, the project would come to fruition or if it would die on the vine. Um, at which point then um, uh, Brad Anderson, Christine Hensley, and uh, Angela Connolly got involved in the project and really spearheaded the And that's the kind of, those are kind of folks from state, local, and, and uh, state, city, and county government. Correct. They, they really know how to sort of push the right sure, buttons and right, drive, right. drive a project like this. And so. Um, they set out and put together a large committee to help with fundraising, which is how I got involved in it. Um, and that was last year. Uh, it took about a year to, I guess 2017, took about a year to raise the three and a half million. Um, and then uh, a couple of things that we found out in the process, one, construction costs have gone up considerably. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, um, <laughs> in the last 15 years. Uh, so the project went up uh, quite a bit. And then the site is a little tricky, so. Um, yeah, it's like kind of a, a slope. Yeah, it's like a 30, it's my understanding, it's a 30-foot decline from 2nd Avenue to the river, uh, which is really tricky. Um, yeah, which can also present some amenities, too. Some, yeah, some yeah, it's going to be pretty neat when it's done. Um, it provided some uh, interesting opportunities and some challenges. So we had to build, we are in the process right now, if, if, if you go down there and look at it, they're building a giant retaining wall, mm -hmm. essentially, sure. um, to basically keep 2nd Avenue secure. Um, <laughs> So it doesn't crash down Correct. onto the escape park. Right, right? and then yeah. ultimately into the river. Right. So that's, uh, that turned out to be a really expensive project um, right. to, to do that. But what that's going to do is that we've now, we're now creating um, a scenic overlook um, called Spectator Park so that people can come on the principal river walk up north mm. and stop at the top there and overlook and see the skate park. Um, and then eventually, when they finish the water trails project, they'll be able to have a nice right. view of, of that as that, well. That, that's something else people should be aware of. Is uh, the, the Des Moines River is is becoming an amazing place. Uh, I mean, it is in its natural condition, but uh, mm -hmm. right now the the man-made amenities or human-induced amenities to it are pretty impressive. And one of them is uh, removing the old dam that's no longer used and replacing that with a series of. Um, of rapids, basically, mm -hmm. to make it attractive to kayakers and uh, rappers, rappers and yeah. maybe an insane canoeer. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's going to be that'll be pretty exciting when they yeah. when they finish that. So, in the process of doing all of this, we we um, started encroaching on um, Texas, which has the largest skate park currently <laughs> in Houston, which is I think it's seventy seven thousand square feet of skatable terrain. As we were building this. Um, we realized that we were we were getting up there, so we said, "Why not?" We're already have to <laughs> raise more money. Few, push um, it a few more meters. Exactly. So we're up to eighty-eight thousand square feet, which oh, wow. will make this the uh, largest open skate park in the country. Has there been any, any pushback from Texans? No, no, not so far. No. Yeah. Maybe when we open it, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see if they add something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, where in Texas park. is the current biggest skate park? Uh, Houston. Okay. Houston. Go Astros. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, right yeah. so, so this is interesting. So um, it'll open next year. Yeah. The the hope, uh, whether uh, if weather weather providing that it, uh, we will have skaters on the park uh, in spring. 
All right. Wow. And uh, I assume there's a pretty enthusiastic response from the local skate community. Uh, I think the general response is, why is it taking so long <laughs> currently? But um, that was mine originally, so, but I get it, I get but it. But yeah, uh, no, I think people are, are pretty um, pretty excited. Uh, I think the skaters are pretty excited to have yeah. this uh, in their backyard. And one of the, what's really neat about this park is that it's, um, it's got some features that, that, are, that are quite unique for anywhere in the country, uh, as well as just being the largest. But it's really designed for every level of skater. So mm -hmm. if you are a professional Olympic class skater, you will find a home at this park and it will be wow. amazing. Okay. But if you are just getting on a skateboard for the first time, uh -huh. you will find a place that allows you to skate. And so it's designed to take beginner skaters and allow them the opportunity to progress as far as their talent will take them right. within within just one with one park. And Des Moines does not currently have much of a problem with skateboarding elsewhere. Uh, I know there are plenty of people skateboarding, but I know sure. that some of the creative means of uh, keeping people from, you know, skating on, on walls that might otherwise might be damaged, they they put little mm -hmm. brackets um, and stuff on them, or yeah. oak leaves. If you're at the yeah. Coles Common, yes. little yeah. metal oak leaves. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but I, I'm guessing that um, even still, people are still out there skating. I see it. Yeah, absolutely. But um, this this will probably encourage less of that and more folks to spend time at the skate park. Yeah, it'll give play, it'll give people an opportunity. Um, to, it'll, it'll give people a place to go that is safe and designed for their sport, okay. um, that uh, keeps them out of the street, keeps them away from pedestrians, um, and really allows them to excel in a way that is, that is uh, safe for them, safe for the community. Now one thing I don't hear a lot of conversation about is skateboarding as transportation. Sure. Uh, when mm -hmm. we talk about alternatives to the automobile, mm -hmm. it's train, it's bike, yep. it's pedestrians. Mm -hmm. uh, but on my street, I see uh, Quite a few skateboarders tearing mm -hmm. down that hill. Yeah, I'm very impressed. Um, <laughs> and they're sometimes teenagers, 20s. I even know knew one guy in his 30s who mm -hmm. would commute to work mm -hmm. by skateboard. So, what about skateboarding as a viable, you know, transportation, environmentally friendly transportation sure. alternative? Um, I think you see that in a lot of other communities across the country. Um, we were in. Uh, my wife and I went to. Uh, Venice, California over the summer um, and, and sort of check that area out and there were a lot of people on skateboards going from point A to point B. It mm -hmm. seemed to be their primary purpose. Um, I mean, weather's obviously a factor here. Um, I mean, you can bike longer than you could skateboard uh, in Iowa weather. Why is that? Um, ice. You well, can't. You can't skate on the ice. Okay, it's, I guess you really can't bike right. on the ice. Either. Well, it, I guess you, if you have those, uh, it's a little those studded bit. tires or something. Sure, yeah. it's. I okay. think you can go just slightly longer. All right. um, on, on biking, but I think um, I think it could be a viable uh, alternative, but it, it's not something that that I have looked too deeply into. Right. Yeah, uh, and it is a good question. I mean, pedestrians are supposed to be on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. uh, bikes is supposed to be on the street. Where would a skateboarder who is commuting to work or to a meeting or just to forever, whatever purpose they want to get from point A to point B, where would they be? I would imagine that um, the safest place would be in the bike lanes. If there is a bike lane. If there is a bike lane, right. yes. Okay. Yeah. So that would put them on the streets in a lot of places. Yeah, I would imagine that that would be safer than on the yeah. sidewalks. I mean, they're, they're faster than a pedestrian, hands down. Yes. But generally speaking, slower than a bike, depending on the bicycler. Mm -hmm. But uh, it would take on a job. I mean, Cars are starting to get used to working their way around bikes on the street. Mm -hmm. uh, there, I, I mean, it wasn't that many years ago. I had somebody yell at me in downtown and went, "Get on the sidewalk where you belong." Mm -hmm. <laughs> I imagine that uh, adding skateboards to the bike commuting uh, system would be confusing to a lot of drivers uh, and bicyclists. I'm sure and bicyclists too, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly how that would how that would work but yeah. yeah well I mean one of my hopes I mean I think this is great for the, the skate park is just fantastic in terms of its recreational opportunity mm -hmm. but I also hope that it encourages people who are inclined to consider a, a, a still yet another option to getting mm -hmm. around without a car sure in the right kind of weather yeah providing there's yeah. not enough ice not too much ice one of the uh, added benefits that could come from the park yeah mm -hmm. so uh, one, one just to wrap it up for us Norm what else should people know about this um, so as I said, it's going to be the largest skate park in the country. It's going to have... We've, we've only said that five times. Yeah, that's correct. Cool. Just, so you, just so you are aware. <laughs> in case you missed it, Texas. Um, <laughs> it, will have, uh, it will have an Olympic class um, park course. So the Olympics are going to be... A, uh, or skateboarding is going to be a sport in the Olympics in the 2020 Olympics. Really? And it'll have two different um, events. One is uh, park and one is street. So we will have both an Olympic quality uh, park course and Olympic quality street course. 
um, as well as a promenade, um, which extends the entire length of the park, fancy word for a sidewalk, that has a lot of skatable <laughs> features in it, including um, a piece of a skatable art, a giant 18-foot-tall uh, sculpture uh, entitled WOW, which is basically the word, the word WOW spelled out that people can skate on, um, which is going to be pretty exciting. Um, and then uh, earlier, or late last year, we launched this organization called Skate DSM. I mean, a lot of the conversation focused on the Lordson Skate Park has been about the economic development that comes in um, from having a world-class facility like this, national tournaments. Because you're probably bringing people from out of town to exactly. come, come yeah. participate. Which is great, and it's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. But um, what I wanted to do while we, through, through this is to make sure that um, our Des Moines local skaters weren't getting lost in the process and the uh, excitement over... Um, overall the national attention. So we created Skate DSM, who, which in part will work to bring in national events and, and things like that, but really for the benefit of our local skaters. And then to provide local programming um, for the Des Moines skate community, including a homegrown um, competition where skaters will have real prize money that they can compete um, and get some notoriety and show what they can do. And uh, skate camps and clinics to teach um, beginner skaters, how to ride a skateboard, how to ride it safely, um, how to use the proper safety equipment, how to understand sort of the culture of the park um, so that you can skate safely, but as well as intermediate and even advanced mm. skaters allow them to be able to progress and yeah. go further. Cool. Well, and this is a... I, I do think in the future it, it might be possible for us to have some qualifying events um, that could take place. Great. Norm, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Folks, we've been talking with Norm Sturzenbach, uh, representing the Lordson Skate Park, the world's largest skate park uh, about to open next spring. Take that, Texas. Anyway, we'll be back in a few minutes, folks. Uh, Mark Stringer with the Iowa uh, American Civil Liberties Union joining us to talk about how one uh, trans student uh, stood up to a very hateful protest by the Westboro Baptist Church, and she did it with love and kindness and a very positive community-building event. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music, and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. 
Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Um, with me in the studio for this segment, uh, Mark Stringer, the, I believe, Executive Director yes. of the ACLU of Iowa. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here. So recently, um, an Ames High School student, uh, Malika Davis, received an award from the ACLU. She's a trans student. Uh, there were several students who got awards. And uh, her, rece her um, receiving that award generated a pushback from no surprise, the Westboro Baptist Church. Well, it's ironic because the reason we were giving her the award was because she had successfully, you could say, pushed back uh, at, at her Ames High School where she's a student when uh, Westboro Baptist Church was going to be a presence there. And she had organized, uh, with the help of others, a, a counter, I wouldn't even call it a protest, more like a counter presence. That yeah, that's, very... that, that's, that, that sounds like a better description. It was, right. Uh, they really didn't even respond to the church uh, folks who were there. Yeah, it sounds like it. We weren't there, but we, we heard about it. And every year, the ACLU of Iowa gives a uh, Robert Mannheimer Youth Advocacy Award. And Malika was nominated by a couple of people who know her well. And uh, she was uh, an easy choice for us. Uh, and then when you meet Malika, uh, it makes it even easier because she's just an exceptional person. Yeah. So the... Um the, the Westboro Baptist Church, for those who may not be familiar with them, uh, maybe you're familiar with the name Reverend Phelps, mm -hmm. uh, who has since passed away, but his um, church and uh, including his, what, 15, 20 kids, um, are still very active in opposing anything to do with the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 had a, I had the pleasure <laughs> of meeting a Reverend Phelps uh, personally uh, years ago when he came to the Iowa State Capitol to protest um, the state's a new policy that it would not discriminate in hiring practices mm -hmm. against LGBTQ people. Right. Um, kind of amazing that uh, that that would warrant a protest of a caravan of hateful people all the way from Kansas. But they burned an Iowa flag out in front of the Capitol, mm -hmm. and uh, inside in the rotunda there were there was a significant um, counter protest, more of a vigil of about mm -hmm. two hundred people. And uh, I remember this is a delicious moment. I remember one of the. Um, one of the more right-wing members of the Iowa House, who um, was very much anti-LGBTQ himself, um, came up to me at, at this uh, counter-protest and said, Ed, is this the rally I'm supposed to be at? I was invited to come here, you know, to oppose the, you know, the, 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 the rule that Vilsack wants to do on LGBT hiring. Mm. And he said, I, I saw some really awful people up front with hateful signs. Uh, I said, Ken? Those are your people. <laughs> but it kind of says volumes as to where we're at in this conversation. I mean, most people have moved beyond hate at this point. I think so. Uh, you know, I think uh, the Westboro Baptist Church really represents a, a very, very small minority of people. Yeah. I mean, just the messaging that they, they tend to display when they show up. 
uh, is far outside the mainstream. I mean, not even close to it. It's yeah. kind of like a whole other planet. So when we got word uh, that they were going to be in uh, in Iowa, in Des Moines, the same morning as our Bill of Rights brunch, where we were going to give Malika <laughs> this award, right, right. Uh, we, we weren't sure what to do, honestly, because uh, certainly some of our allied organizations that care about LGBTQ rights, uh, they kind of have the mind that maybe you should just ignore them uh, and, and they'll just go away because they are so far outside the mainstream. But the more the staff and I discussed it, it was pretty evident that because it was our event and because we were honoring this courageous young person, Malika, uh, we would be doing ourselves a disservice to not at least give an another message while they were here. So it's kind of unbecoming to plan your own protest, but um, we are the ACLU of Iowa after all. And, and we had, and, uh, they, the Westboro Baptist Church had been a client of ours in 2013. We'd actually protected their right to uh, desecrate the flag, to spit on it, to drag right, it on the right, ground. Right, right, right. Uh, burn it in front of the Capitol? Yeah, I, don't, I, I wasn't there at the time, but I, I don't remember burning at that particular time being part of the, the things we were protecting. Oh, but, right. but, but, but I will say um, that, you know, the ACLU of Iowa always stands up for free speech rights, but we, we try to uh, retain the right to say we disagree with you, though, yeah. which was what we did with Westboro Baptist Church. We'll defend your right to peacefully protest, but we will not uh, adhere to what you're yeah. saying. They're, yeah. they're so obviously outside of what right. we would stand for. Now, uh, Kathy and I came to the uh, the ACLU counter-protest. Oh, wonderful. And it, it was very... Um, it was very civil. Very. Yeah. Uh, there was only one person I thought had an in inappropriate sign. Yeah. Um, but the signs. I will say this: that the we, we went. The first thing we did before we joined the ACLU group, mm -hmm. we went over and talked to the Westboro Baptists. Well, we talked to one of the um, uh, participants. Yes. A daughter of Fred Phelps, mm -hmm. uh, and she was um, she was quite reasonable to talk with, on every front until you started getting into, the LGBTQ mm -hmm. concerns, <laughs> and then it kind of. Then her logic kind of went off the tracks, mm -hmm. and she started citing Bible verses that really seemed irrelevant when you thought about them. Otherwise, a really nice person, and I will say this, I complimented her, I said, look, I, I will say this, your signs are much less offensive than they were years ago. <laughs> and they were, progress. I mean, they're, they're the progress, well, less offensive signs. I, I don't know, they were pretty obnoxious to me, but well, I guess they, it's they all comparative, so, right? well, Trust me, they were so much worse years yeah, ago. I, I mean, stick figures that were just, yeah. and just and hideous, like little kids holding God hates fag signs. Ah. I mean, terrible stuff. So they, they, they've... They progressed. Yeah, <laughs> they're well, not uh, quite as hateful. Well, and we honestly wouldn't probably. We wanted to check with Malika right, before sure. we we helped organize anything because what would make her feel comfortable? And she was she was hilarious. She's like, "Well, I want to show up to the protest too." <laughs> We're like, "No, you don't have to. Just come with your family and come to the brunch. But we, we'll take. We got this one. We, we heard that she might. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And and mm -hmm. I don't know if you had a chance to meet her. No, at, we at did the, not. She's no. she's really exceptional. Yeah. So we're yeah. we're glad that we could uh, stand up uh, as we have, uh, particularly recently uh, for trans rights, trans. Mm -hmm. Uh, presence in our mm -hmm. community that trans people do in fact belong in Iowa. They're already yeah. here. They've always belonged and we're, we've been working hard in the courts uh, to, to try to ensure that's the case. Yeah. And there's a lot. I mean, I have, I have, I have a trans niece and I, mm. I just know the, the pain that she has experienced in her background, her past. And uh, I, I know that it's not, we're, not, we're not there yet. Right. We're not there yet. I mean, we're closer to being fully accepting as a society of, of gays and lesbians. Mm. We still have a ways to go with the trans community. But I think the progress is there. It's happening, and hopefully, um, you know, awards like what you are offering, um, other types of recognition, other, you know, just more and more people getting, getting to know and accept folks, trans folks. I, I think that's uh, you know the, the gradual march toward equality is 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 well underway. Yeah, and as you probably know as well as anybody, uh, Ed, the the behavior and the responses to our court victories at the legislature uh, mm -hmm. has been uh, not exactly what we would want either, right. which is what's led us to file another suit on behalf of trans rights. So what, what is currently happening at this, I mean right now well, we we're in session, but we will be again soon and we can probably see what might be coming. Yeah, well I, I, our legal team won a historic victory at the Iowa Supreme Court on behalf of uh, the trans uh, right to, uh, trans people's right to have health care medically necessary transition-related surgery. 
uh, unanimous decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and then shortly after that ruling, uh, uh, the Iowa legislature turned around and basically uh, removed the part of the Iowa Civil Rights Act that would protect trans rights. Uh, in this particular, it was a very... Did uh, that pass both chambers? Uh, yeah, and signed by the governor. It was added mm -hmm. to a budget bill. Oh, that, so that, it's that's very the, last. No, that's not even legal. Well, the the, the process, um, the, the the Apple Constitution says you can't do that. Yes, and yet they still find ways of doing yeah. it. Well, and we're 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 fighting for it in the courts right now uh, on behalf of our clients, uh, and uh, and we we hope to to see that cruel action overturned because yeah. that's really what it was. But, then, but the Supreme Court mm. made, ruled in favor of the trans community. Well, it's certainly their their right to non-discrimination and public accommodation. That that that's okay. really what what it was about. And then so they changed the the legislature and the governor signed a bill that then changed the the law so that it would exclude right. uh, trans people's access to medically necessary transition related health care. Mm -hmm. uh, and that every major medical yeah. association says this kind of care is medically necessary. Right. Uh, and I think when uh, when it came up to a debate on the floor, I think the argument was made made uh, by at least one legislator that uh, he apparently didn't care about medical opinion because he trusted his gut more than that. <laughs> and he believed that this was in fact cosmetic care, which every medical mm -hmm. association disagrees with. So mm -hmm. it's just the kind of climate we live in where someone's gut instinct can override medical facts. Yeah, wh what is their gut instinct based on? Well, it's based on their own history and biases and experience and that, that, that may not be consistent with reality. Well, or we should, medical science. We would argue it's not, <laughs> right. and that's why yeah. we're fighting it. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, and again, I think, uh, you know, the ACLU has lost a lot of battles over the years, mm. but you've also won some really important ones. Well, and I think you're you're obviously on the right side of this one. Well, interestingly, at this brunch where we honored Malika, we also honored two Iowans, uh, uh, Kenneth Bunch and Tracy Bjorgum, who were in 1976 our first clients on behalf of marriage equality. They mm, got a marriage right, license right. or sought one in Polk County and were denied. Uh, and so that was 1976. It took what four decades. Yeah. Uh, three decades to get it in through Iowa, uh, and then another almost full decade to get it across the whole country. Yeah. Uh, so we may lose the battle, but we don't give up the war. Yeah. And uh, I think in trans rights is another area where uh, it's okay to be ahead of the curve. It's okay to be ahead of public understanding. In fact, somebody has to, and uh, ACLU of Iowa, along with a lot of our other partners, One Iowa and others, Iowa Safe Schools, uh, we continue to advocate yeah. uh, for trans people's rights because they belong in Iowa. Yeah, and just uh, thinking of, of marriage equality and, 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 and gay and lesbian equality, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't that long ago, again, back in the 80s and early 90s even, where two of my friends who were leaders uh, on equality, John Schmacher and, and Jonathan Wilson mm -hmm. uh, had repeated death threats. Yes. I mean, Jonathan Wilson had to wear a bulletproof vest. Yeah. Uh, and when I when I uh, spoke out in, in support of equality at the state house uh, during the uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, mm -hmm. uh, which is a joke of a name, uh, conversation, uh, I was told by the leadership of the Democratic Party not to speak. Mm -hmm. I did anyhow, and I got myself a primary opponent. <laughs> this is back in '96. So it wasn't that long ago that Democrats were horrible on equality as well. And then they came around, and now the rest of the world is coming around. You know? And sometimes so. it's hard for legislators to be out in front, and that's why it's vital for citizen groups mm -hmm. uh, yep. to really lead the way and yep. put the pressure on legislators so that it's actually politically viable for them to do what's right, <laughs> to do what's morally right, you know? Uh, it, yeah. it, there's there's the, the trajectory towards more rights and equality for more people more of the time is an ongoing uh, uh, arc, yeah. uh, and, uh, and we just continue to do everything we can to to try to keep bending that. Well, the ACLU has been on the front line of that, uh, of that fight for a long, long time, and I commend you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks yeah. to all our supporters who make it possible for yeah. us to do this work. Okay. And again, I do hope to meet uh, Malika Davis someday and uh, congratulate her. Yes. And uh, again, brave, uh, brave, uh, brave young woman and uh, an important work that she's doing. Too. Indeed. So, yeah. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks, We've been talking with Mark Stringer with the, uh, the American Civil, sorry, the yeah, American Civil Liberties Union of Iowa. There we go. That's Got us. It right? You, you did. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Quick shout out to our local business partners here in the Des Moines Metro. 
Thanks to Noche. Uh, Noche is Central Iowa's premier home for jazz and cabaret, attracting both national acts and local favorites and featuring a world-class cocktail bar. Check out Noche on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Uh, thanks also to Gateway Market and Cafe, located on 20th and Woodland. That is my grocery store and an excellent place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Open seven days a week. Uh, Gateway also has an excellent catering service. Uh, thanks also to Hawk Restaurant. Uh, Hawk will soon be celebrating its seventh anniversary. Hawk is located on East 5th and Walnut in the East Village, where 90% of the food they serve comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance. They cover the complete realm of insurance needs, folks. No appointment needed. Stop by. They're located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. That's Diversity Insurance. And finally, thanks to Community CPA, located in Des Moines, Iowa City, and now also in Minneapolis. Community CPA, Community CPA rather, can cover all of your tax and accounting needs. Founder Ying Sao is the one to contact there. That's Community CPA. All right, again, thanks for tuning in to today's program. You know, the municipal election coming up next week, very important. Even though most people have been kind of focused on what's going to happen next year, 2020, the uh, battle to reclaim the Senate if you're a Democrat, to hang on to it if you're a Republican, and, of course, the all-important struggle for what happens in the White House. I'd like to tell you that elections in America are fair. The opportunity to vote is equally applied to all, but... Increasingly, that's not the case. And we certainly have covered uh, voter suppression in various forms on this program. Uh, gerrymandering, uh, that's probably the worst. And again, gerrymandering, not something that only Republicans do. Democrats have done it in, in Maryland, in Illinois, but Republicans have mastered it. And they've done it in more places and in places where the impact is greater. And that's, again, not the only thing that happens, too. You've got, uh, you've got so many other types of voter suppression. A new one came to my attention this past week. And this was compliments of, uh, yes, every once in a while, the mainstream media enlightened me. So thank you, New York Times, for this interesting story about, about um, how voter suppression is being applied to the student population. And this example comes out of Austin, Texas, where at a community college, um, this spring, this past spring, spring of 2019, the Texas legislature, they put the kibosh on polling places that wouldn't stay open for the entire 12-day early voting period. Because on a lot of campuses, you've got these, these voting stations that are open for certain amounts of time. <clears throat> and that makes sense. It doesn't make sense to have them open the entire, you know, for an entire week or two weeks. So let me let me just read this to you. When 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 ta when, the, when the election in Texas takes place take place in three weeks, those nine sites these are nine um, early voting sites around the um, state of Texas. Um, well, that were there, you know, last year. They 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 logged as many as nearly uh, they logged uh, nearly fourteen thousand ballots from full time students. These were cast last year in twenty eighteen. That was a huge increase from what happened in twenty fourteen. Those nine sites will be shuttered. They will no longer be open. Neither will uh, six campus polling places in Fort Worth at uh, colleges there. Also, there are two, two colleges in Brownsville that, have, uh, uh, um, that had polling places that won't be open. And a lot of people are, no, are obviously upset about this. Um, According to Grant Loveless, quoted in the story, quote, it was a beautiful thing. A lot of people out there in those long lines. Grant is a 20-year-old student. He's uh, majoring in psychology and poli-sci. And he voted in uh, 2018. And uh, again, because it's not at all practical for the, for the college to maintain the voting location for the entire 12-day early voting period, they're just not going to have it at all. They, they can't have it at all because the state legislature changed the law. And um, you'd have to ask, why, why do they do that? Well, again, there's only they, – they can give – the Republican lawmakers who wanted this change give various reasons. But there's only one reason that makes any sense and only one reason that you really have to think about. And that is you know, they, they want to suppress the vote because young people tend to vote – uh, much more are much more inclined to vote democratically 
than than for a Republican candidate. So yeah, just just comparing it um, nationwide in the 2018 midterms, uh, 40.3% of 10 million students. Uh, this is a tracking done by Tufts University's Institute for Democracy and Higher Ed. 40.3% uh, voted. That, that's more than double the rate of students who voted in the 2014 midterms. More than double. That's a huge increase. And given the interest that students are showing in issues, uh, you know, student debt, um, health care, and the climate crisis, uh, and just general distaste for the Trump presidency, uh, there is expectation of a huge and even huger voter turnout among students in 2020. And so Republicans are doing what they can to try to make sure that doesn't happen. I don't know how they can feel good about that. <laughs> so, yeah, and again, it's not, it's not a coincidence that the, um, the most... Uh, pronounced efforts to suppress the student vote are happening in places that are battleground states, like Texas. Now, you know, Texas is considered a Republican stronghold, but that's changing. That has been changing gradually and dramatically. And so because it's changing dramatically, uh, those who are still in power, again, Republicans control the legislature, are doing what they can to make sure that it doesn't get any, quote, worse, meaning we don't want too many students participating because they're going to offset the results. Again, there are efforts to suppress the vote in the Latino community. We've seen that here in Iowa. Uh, there are even, yeah, and this was also Texas. I'm, I'm, I'm going from memory on this, but if memory serves, uh, there was a requirement in Texas that your voter ID, your, the, your name on your voter identification card had to match what it said on your uh, driver's license. So what if you changed your last name? Maybe you got married. <laughs> Maybe you got divorced. You changed your name. And, uh, you know, you, you did it immediately on, on one form, but not on the other. You weren't able to vote. This, this had, there, there, were actually, there were actually Republican women in Texas who were caught by this change, which, again, you know, that happens. But Mostly, these efforts are designed to limit Democratic participation. Uh, we, we've seen it in, uh, in uh, heavily minority precincts. So it's, it's not just Texas, though. It's the other end of the country, New Hampshire. So a Republican-backed law that took effect um, just this fall uh, will require all new registered voters to establish a, quote, domicile in the state. They, they've got to have a New Hampshire driver's license and auto registration. And, of course, that costs a lot of money and begs the question, well, you know, if I'm a student on a campus and pretty much my life is there, my meals, my lodging, my classes, my social life, why do I need a driver's license? Why do I need a car? I mean, having a driver's license is one thing, but having, you know, when you have an auto registration, that means you have an auto, a car, and maybe you don't even need one. You know, so, again, six in ten New Hampshire college students come from outside of the state. That's one of the highest rates in the nation. And, um, you know, so and, and efforts to try to restrict voting by students, it's, this is not a new thing in New Hampshire. It goes back a ways. Uh, William O'Brien, he was the uh, former Republican House Speaker back uh, eight years ago, called students, um, uh, he, he referred to uh, uh, students uh, and, and again saying that we need to restrict their voting. If they're not from New Hampshire, they shouldn't be able to vote because, quote, kids vote liberal, vote their feelings, they have no life experience. Um, <laughs> wow, how condescending is that? So um, in Florida, the Republican Secretary of State uh, outlawed early voting sites at state universities. This was back in 2014. Uh, and that, that was, that was uh, and despite that, 60,000 voters cast on-campus ballots in 2018. Why? 
Well, because a federal court overturned the ban. So who knows what the actual impact would have been had that ban not been overturned. But at 60,000 kids voting who might not, many of them might not have voted otherwise. So this year, 2019, fast forward in Florida, the state legislature there reinstated the ban on early voting sites on campuses. Uh, how they do that? Well, they slipped a they slipped a quiet little clause into into a new elections law that again, <laughs> this is amazing to me, requires all early voting sites to offer quote sufficient non permitted parking. Okay, so parking is hard enough at, at colleges and universities, right? And if you're a student and that's where you live and work and eat and sleep and party. And maybe go to class. You know, you you may not even have a car. So it's 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 just clearly out of touch with reality. But that's not the that's not the point. The point is to find other ways of restricting voter participation. So in North Carolina, moving around the country here, North Carolina, uh, Republicans there enacted a voter ID law in 2018 that claimed that student identification cards are valid, but the requirements were, I mean, the, the detail was so cumbersome that major state universities were unable to comply, according to this uh, New York Times article. You know, a later revision um, relaxed that rule, but there's still, lots of people are still confused about it, and um, fewer than half of the state's 180 schools have sought to certify their IDs for voting. Okay, so again, North Carolina, remember, like Florida, like New Hampshire, like Texas anymore, is a swing state. I know we don't think of Texas as a swing state, but it has become one. So um, also Wisconsin, probably the most uh, infamous swing state, which Donald Trump barely won in 2016. Uh, Republicans there have imposed... um, uh, tough restrictions on using student IDs for voting purposes. So there the state requires poll workers to check signatures only on student IDs. And that's even though some of the schools in Wisconsin issue modern identification cards that serve not just as identification cards, but as debit cards and also dorm, dorm room keys. So they, they don't have signatures because one reason is that's a security risk. So it just it is incredible to me to see what is happening and how little people know about it uh, and how important it is that we speak out against this. And again, if Democrats were doing this, I would be just as appalled as I have been critical of Democrats where they have gerrymandered, for example. But again, mostly it's Republicans who are doing this stuff, creating one impediment after another. Uh, with a huge range in, in very, uh, they, I mean, the, the, the tactics vary drastically from one place to another. But the goal is to suppress the vote, to make it impossible for the minority party, which is, I mean, um, in America today, folks, the Republican Party is the minority party. The majority party are people who are not affiliated with either party, with Democrats being the second largest voter affiliation. They're trying to suppress the vote. Don't let them do it. This is Ed Fallon with you folks on the Fallon Forum. Forum. I want to read a little bit from my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. Chapter 3, Second Class Travel. Quote from Charles Kuralt. Thanks to the interstate highway system, it is now possible to travel from coast to coast without seeing anything. 
The three worst inventions in the industrial history of man, yes, blame men, are the television, the nuclear bomb, and the automobile. I have been mostly successful at avoiding television to the point of being culturally illiterate. Someone once asked what I thought of Downton Abbey, and my response was, ha, huh, I didn't know Des Moines had a monastery. Regarding nuclear bombs, perhaps simply through dumb luck, I have so far managed to avoid them. Given that Earth is home to 15,000 nuclear weapons, 1,800 of them on high alert and capable of being launched in a matter of minutes, dumb luck is a quality I share with all of humanity. Let's hope it holds. Better yet, let's hope the nations of the world come to their senses and disarm. Regarding the automobile, my track record is mixed. During America's 240 years of nationhood, we have built remarkable, even beautiful infrastructure. We have also built spirit-crushing rubbish that would have made Joseph Stalin proud. The interstate highway system is of the latter genre. The ascendancy of the automobile as the sole form of transportation for most Americans was enabled and solidified by this system. It's as if the interstate's designers said, let's create the most soul-sucking, isolating travel experience imaginable, then underfund or eliminate every other form of transportation so people have no choice but to use it. In this, the designers were eminently successful. Not counting time spent as passengers, Americans drive an average of 280 hours each year, about 24% of that on interstate highways, or freeways, as we have been conditioned to call them. Freeway is one of the most brilliant linguistic coups of modern times, more impressive even than changing the name of the War Department to the Department of Defense or calling civilians killed in war collateral damage. Calling something free that cost Americans $114 billion to build and hundreds of billions more to expand and maintain is social engineering at its finest. Because it's free, and for most people the only viable transportation option, few Americans question the necessity for ever bigger, wider swaths of asphalt and concrete. Unlike televisions and nuclear bombs, I do own a car. She's a rusty, battered old Subaru named Beast that my friend and former legislative colleague, Bill Witt, sold to me for a buck. My previous car was another rusty, battered old Subaru, also named Beast, also sold to me by Bill for a buck. And no, Bill is not a Subaru dealer. He's a photographer and generous to a fault. So ask Bill for a photo of a Subaru, but don't pester him about whether he's got a real one kicking around that he'll sell you for a buck. My first beast and I shared seven years of car man bliss before she dramatically exited this life in a glorious burst of smoke at 60 miles an hour in heavy traffic. True to the end, beast guided me to the road's shoulder unharmed as she bellowed her final dying breath. In my present life in Des Moines, Thanks to an old bike and good walking shoes, I can go a week or more without commissioning my new beast into service. Yet as a state lawmaker and candidate for governor in Congress, I was imprisoned in a car for as many as 30,000 miles a year. My occasional furlough was to escape the interstate and meander back roads homeward, annoying my children and frustrating my staff. As far as I could gather, these furloughs were bothersome to my passengers because travel in America is not about the journey. It's about getting someplace as quickly and cheaply as possible, someplace where life begins once you're done squandering time on travel. A back road is a quieter, simpler place, designed with priorities other than speed and size, built with aesthetic sensitivity to the vagaries of both land and human habitation. On back roads, you're closer to the land and able to appreciate features that don't even register from a car barreling down the interstate.
On back roads, you often wind your way through small towns and experience fleeting impressions of those towns' unique characteristics. You're more inclined to stop, which is good for your spirit, good for your posture, and good for the town's often struggling economy. A back road can be beautiful to drive, and as I was soon to discover, even more beautiful to walk. It's not possible to live without occasionally compromising one's principles. I have driven and will drive again. I have flown and will fly again. But it was impossible to justify driving or flying to the start of a cross-country march whose mission was to move America beyond fossil fuels. On February 23rd of 2014, I board Amtrak for the 48-hour train ride from Iowa to Los Angeles for the start of the climate march. My gear consists of two duffel bags, one containing my camping gear, the other clothing and personal supplies. I carry my walking stick and a small satchel given to me in 1995 by Sumitra Kulkarni, the granddaughter of Mahatma Gandhi. With the addition of a liner and four pockets, the satchel is the perfect size for carrying what I need for the day's march. Water bottle, wallet, headset, lunchbox, sunscreen, and phone charger. As I settle into my seat on the train, I think of how, beyond its stated purpose of sounding the alarm about the climate crisis, the march will serve as a countercultural statement about the value of walking as transportation. Whereas walking doesn't even register on Americans' list of transit options, train travel in America is second-class transit at best, at first-class prices. I dropped $700 on my one-way ticket to Los Angeles, twice as much as I would have paid to fly. But factoring in that this price covers six meals in my roomette in the sleeper car and the lowest possible carbon footprint, it's a worthwhile investment. Surprisingly, the food on the train does not suck, nor do the social aspects of dining. I appreciate how the wait staff never ask passengers entering the dining car where they want to sit. They simply show you to your table, always with another passenger probably one you've never met. This has the effect of encouraging something foreign to modern American eating habits, a dining experience that melds mostly satisfying food with, if you're lucky, mostly satisfying conversation. My roomette in the sleeper car is cramped but manageable. It's barely larger than the tent I am about to call home for the next eight months, I'm impressed that such a tiny space can meet so many human needs. As the train rolls westward toward the Rockies, we fall further and further behind schedule. Freight haulers own the tracks, and we sit and wait while a cargo train passes, often hauling coal and oil. Once, yes, just once, we pass a train stacked with wind turbine blades. At least that's a start, I muse. Free of the need to grasp a steering wheel, train travelers have ample time to read, converse, roam about, or, in my case, work. There is still so much to do before the start of the march, which is now less than a week away. Like my campaigns for governor and Congress, I'm constantly raising money. A slew of logistical details still have to be addressed, and fewer than half our California campsites have been secured. Internet and phone service are intermittent, affording me occasional time to think and reflect. I daydream as I study the changing landscapes that roll by, wondering if I will soon walk across this particular stretch of country. I feel I'm being offered a preview of some of the beauty and challenges that lie ahead. I have time to think about my life, too. At night, before bed, or when I can't sleep, I stare out the window of the car at the silhouettes of buildings and landscapes in the distance, or sometimes very close, too close to see with clarity, merely a blur and a flash of shadow and light. When I look at the window itself, I see my reflection, see a man who looks confident and ready to tackle a great challenge, but whose eyes belie more than a trace of sadness and loneliness. 
There are times when the clacking of the train against the tracks simulates the sound of an old movie wheel rewinding. I stare at the man in the window. Why this sadness? Why this loneliness? I think about my two failed marriages. Plenty of sadness there. More than anything, I think about grace, how we fell madly in love, a love like none I've ever known. I miss her. I want to be with her so badly. And I find comfort knowing that when the march is over, we will begin our lives together. That's a reading from my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. So if you're interested in my book, folks, I hope you'll uh, pick up a copy of it. You can do that on the Bold Iowa website, boldiowa.com. Make sure it's .com, not .org, boldiowa.com. And you'll learn a little bit more about the book. Uh, there are some photographs and a way, to, a way to go ahead and get a copy of the book. Anyway, thanks, folks, for tuning in to the Fallon Forum. As always, we're live Mondays at 11 o'clock Central Time, and you can hear the show as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website, also rebroadcast on stations around Iowa and across the country.